Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go papertarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we're going to talk about Lucretia of Winchester. And we got a lot of requests to talk about her back in early 22 after an article about her went viral. And at the time, like... I'll do a basic gut check to see, is there going to be enough information? And at the time, it seemed like that answer might be no. But in hindsight, what was really happening was that because of this one viral article, there was a bunch of newly published stuff that was all repeating the same basic points, and it just kind of overwhelmed everything that was more substantive. Lucretia of Winchester was one of a number of Jewish women who was a major financier in medieval England, and her life also spanned just a big part of Jewish history in England during the Middle Ages. And if you're like, wait, Tracy, the Middle Ages lasted for like a thousand years. How can one person's life span most of it? There were only Jewish settlements in England for a pretty brief window during that period, and that very brief window was marked with just increasing anti-Semitic violence and hostility, and that went on until England expelled its Jewish population in 1290. So we're going to talk about her. We're also kind of talking about the arc of Jewish history in medieval England. And we don't know exactly when the first Jewish person arrived in England, but established Jewish communities followed the Norman conquest in the 11th century. William, Duke of Normandy, also known as William the Conqueror, defeated English King Harold II at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. We have covered that battle on the show before, and we ran it as a classic back in 2019. William was crowned as King William I at Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day of that year. In addition to conquering England, William essentially replaced the the English aristocracy with Normans, and he also moved Normans into high-ranking church and administrative positions. 
a lot of England's existing merchants and other business people were really opposed to these changes, and that left William in need of both money and new trading partners. So he encouraged Jewish merchants, traders, and lenders from Rouen and Normandy to settle in London to fill some of those needs. Once Jewish people started arriving in England about 1070, they were essentially seen as the king's property. In theory, they were serving the king in exchange for royal protection. But in reality, that protection only existed when it suited the king. They were going to be talking a lot more about that. Uh, Initially, Jews were allowed to live only in London. But by the middle of the 12th century, Jewish communities were established all over other parts of England as well. Although Jewish people had to have permission to live or travel outside of London. These communities were generally self-governing, especially in terms of anything that had to do with religion or religious law, and they existed at the king's prerogative. This was outside of the bounds of the rest of the social hierarchy. One of the many things that the Normans did after arriving in England was build castles, and most Jewish communities were in a city that had a royal castle, or if not a castle, at least a headquarters for the sheriff who represented the king. This proximity to the castle was because of the Jewish community's relationship with the king, and the castle had a number of roles. It could be a refuge during an outbreak of violence or some other threat against the Jewish community, but it could also be a prison. For example, at some points, whole communities were imprisoned in the castle until they paid off an enormous tax. So they were basically being held hostage. This tax was known as tallage, and for most people in England, the tallage was something that lords imposed on their tenants. But for Jewish communities, the tallage was imposed directly by the king, and the amount was totally up to the king's whims. Sometimes it was truly exorbitant. And this was especially true if there was something that the king really wanted money for, like to fund a war, especially if maybe he wanted to fund a war without having to talk to parliament about anything or if he was trying to punish or coerce the Jewish community in some way. In terms of language and culture, Jewish people in England tended to have a lot in common with the Norman aristocracy. Because reading from the Torah and other texts was a central part of Jewish religious practice, Jews were more likely to be literate than Christian commoners were, regardless of how affluent their family was. As was true of the Norman aristocracy, most Jewish people's first language was Norman French, and most Jewish people went by French versions of Hebrew names. Most also spoke and read Hebrew in religious contexts and knew at least some Middle English, which is what Christian commoners spoke in their day-to-day lives. Some may have known a bit of Latin as well. At this point, Yiddish existed as a language, but it was mainly being spoken in Central and Eastern Europe, not as far west as England and France. We have evidence to suggest that Jewish people in England observed Jewish dietary laws, and there were kosher butchers and bakers working in a lot of Jewish communities. These communities also typically had a synagogue and a mikveh, or a ritual bath, for the community's use. Sometimes the synagogue was its own freestanding building, usually located somewhere unobtrusive and out of the way for both safety and privacy. Sometimes in smaller communities, it was more like a room in someone's home. Either way, though, the synagogue was at the center of religious and community life. 
As far as we know, Jews and Christians in medieval England wore similar clothing, although eventually there was one key difference. Starting in 1217, Jews were required to wear a badge called a tabula in the shape of two stone tablets, symbolic of the stone tablets bearing the Ten Commandments described in the Torah and the Christian Bible. This followed a decree from the Fourth Lateran Council, which Pope Innocent III had convened two years before. And this decree ordered that Jews living in Christian nations had to be visually distinguished in some way. Some other countries also did this with a badge, and others required Jewish people to wear a pointed or conical hat. For a time, though, wealthy Jews in England could pay a fine to be exempted from this requirement, sometimes paying for their whole community to be exempt. By the end of the 12th century, there were more than 20 Jewish communities in England. They had a combined total of about 5,000 people. So for comparison, England's total population was roughly 5 million people. There were limits on which professions Jewish people were allowed to pursue, but there were Jewish butchers, bakers, teachers, doctors, midwives, and scribes. Since Jewish people were more likely to be literate than Christians of, like, the same status, Jewish scribes tended to be in really high demand. But the job that was most associated with Jewish people in England was lending. There were 10 or 15 very affluent Jewish families that were basically banking families, working as financiers, investors, and business people, and sometimes essentially serving as the king's personal lender. England's wealthiest Jewish lenders could arrange the funds to pay for things like fully outfitted ships and newly constructed buildings. But outside of these few families, most lenders were working on a much smaller scale, making small loans to ordinary people. Many were in a role that was more comparable to kind of being a pawnbroker today. One reason why Jewish people were associated with lending in England and in a lot of the rest of Europe has to do with religious law. The books of Exodus, Deuteronomy, and Ezekiel are part of both the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible. If you're not familiar, those contain the same books uh, in the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament of the Christian Bible, but like in a different order and the interpretations vary a little bit. Uh, These include scriptures that prohibit the charging of interest to people in need, as well as charging interest to one's brother. There are varying opinions on how to translate and interpret the word brother, but during the medieval period, Jewish leaders generally interpreted this as a prohibition on Jewish people charging interest to other Jews. But Christian leaders in the medieval period viewed charging interest to anyone as usury, because charging interest was seen as avarice, and that was a sin. Uh, I really don't feel qualified to get into all the theological nuances here, but many Muslims also viewed and still view all forms of interest as usury. So in a lot of places during the medieval period, Jewish lenders filled part of the gap between religious prohibitions on usury and the realities of living in a society that used money. To be really clear, though, Jewish lenders were not filling all of that gap. There were Christians who loaned money and charged interest in spite of the religious prohibitions against it, and there were Christian military orders, including the Knights Templar, and those essentially worked as banks. 
When Lucretia of Winchester was living, Italian lenders were also becoming well-established all over Western Europe, generally known as Lombards, even though they were not necessarily from Lombardy. In other words, even in England, where the king's policies were really pushing them toward working as lenders, most Jewish people were not lending money, and most people lending money weren't Jewish. The idea of the, quote, Jewish moneylenders was really rooted in prejudicial stereotypes. Like, just the word moneylenders is loaded with connotations that is, doesn't apply to a word like financier or banker, which was basically the same thing. This association between Jewish people and lending also led to a lot of backlash because of the connection to something that other religions saw as sinful and because, as a whole, working as lenders meant that a lot of Jewish communities were relatively wealthy. This didn't necessarily extend to the wealth of any individual person, though, like an individual Jewish person might be about as wealthy as their Christian neighbor, but, like, as a group, they tended to be affluent. This also circles back to the community's relationship with the king. Like, if the king was facing opposition from the nobility over some issue, he might cancel all their outstanding loans from Jewish lenders. It was completely within his power to do that. Or the king might help pay for a war by canceling the debts of nobles who agreed to serve, rather than directly paying them for their service. Although a series of English kings basically used Jewish lenders as their own personal bank, whether they repaid those loans, that could be totally arbitrary. And that brings us to the life of Lucretia of Winchester, who, among other things, was the personal financier to King Henry III. We'll talk more about her after a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. We don't know exactly when Licrisha of Winchester was born, but it was probably in the very early 1200s. At one point, she's referred to as Licoritia of Canterbury, so she might have been born there. I also found a source that her father may have been Lombard of Winchester, suggesting maybe she really was born in Winchester. Other sources said her father's name was Isaac. It was all very unclear. Regardless of where she was born, Licoritia eventually wound up living in Winchester, which was home to one of England's largest and most affluent Jewish communities. A Jewish visitor from France described the city as, quote, the Jerusalem of Jews in those parts. Most Jewish people in Winchester lived around what was then known as Shoemaker Street, sharing the same neighborhood with Christian merchants, goldsmiths, and other business people. Shoemaker Street later became known as Jewry Street, which is what it is still named today. When Lucretia was born, John, known as John Lackland, was king of England. In 1210, he ordered the arrest of England's entire Jewish population and commanded them to turn over all of their wealth to him. So this was something that she lived through when she was still a child. She also would have lived through the First Barons' War, which started in 1215. This was a civil war that started out as an uprising of landowners against the king. The barons sought help from France, and Louis, son of French King Philip II, captured Winchester and a lot of the surrounding area, temporarily taking control of roughly half of England. This is something else she would have lived through. This war ended in 1217, when Licoritia was probably in her mid-teens. So in 1216, as this war was ongoing... King John died of dysentery, and his nine-year-old son, Henry III, succeeded him. Henry III reigned until 1272. And Henry's overall attitude toward the Jewish population is encapsulated in his Statute of Jewry in 1253. Quote, All Jews, wheresoever they may be in the realm, are of right under the tutelage and protection of the king nor is it lawful for any of them to subject himself to any wealthy person without the king's license. Jews and all their effects are the king's property, and if anyone withhold their money from them, let the king recover it as his own. Henry often referred to the Anglo-Jewish population as 
my Jews, and one of his most important sources of royal funds was the talages paid by the Jewish community. At some point, probably sometime between 1215 and 1220, Lucretia married a businessman and financier named Abraham. They had three sons, Isaac, known as Cockerell, Lombard, and Baruch, known as Benedict. They may have also had a daughter called Belia. Some sources, though, conclude that Belia was a daughter-in-law. A lot of stuff is not totally clearly documented. In 1225, Abraham and five other Jewish men in Winchester were accused of murdering a Christian child. This was part of a pattern of ritual murder allegations, also known as the blood libel. So false accusations of Jewish people murdering Christian children as part of a ritual or to use their blood for ritual purposes. Although there were earlier precursors, the first such accusation is generally noted as happening in Norwich, England in 1144, after a boy named William was found stabbed to death. The Jewish population of Norwich took refuge in the castle as their entire community was threatened in retaliation for a crime they did not commit. Licorice's husband, Abraham, and two other men were found guilty of these allegations, and normally the punishment would have been hanging, but there's no actual record of Abraham being hanged. There's actually no further record of him at all. But in 1234, which is the first written record we have of Licorice, she's described in a way that makes it clear that she was a widow. We don't really know how Licorice supported herself and her children after Abraham's death. All of his assets were confiscated after his conviction, but it is possible that their original marriage contract had set aside money for her in the event of Abraham's death. This was a common provision in Jewish marriage contracts. It's also possible that she was supported by Abraham's colleagues or others in the Jewish community. While we don't know what her original source of funds was, we do know that Lucretia made wise use of those funds, By the end of the 1230s, she had become one of the biggest financiers in Winchester, and by the 1240s, she was independently wealthy. In 1239, the Royal Council demanded a tallage of a third of all the chattels or tangible property of England's Jewish community, including the value of outstanding loans, ultimately calling for a total of 20,000 marks. This was a truly enormous sum, especially considering that, with only a couple of exceptions, the tallage had been between 2,000 and 3,000 marks per year over the previous two decades. A mark was two-thirds of a pound, which would be very approximately 500 British pounds or 636 American dollars in today's money. So this tallage was worth millions and millions of dollars. Yeah, that's when I I put very approximately in italics here because, like, it's almost impossible to make an actual comparison. And it's complicated by the fact that, like, a mark wasn't really a currency that people went around buying things with. It was more a figure used to calculate things like this. Right. Uh, So, yeah, this was an enormous amount of money. And people started trying to collect the money to pay it in late 1239 and early 1240. By September, though, only a 1,000 marks had been collected. Records of loans by Jewish lenders were kept in both Hebrew and Latin in locked chests that were known as arche. And at various points, the king ordered those chests to be closed so that the royal authorities could, like, tally up the value of all the bonds that were in there. 
adjust the total due if they needed to. This uh, sealing these up basically froze the ability for anybody to make new loans or to collect on existing loans, and then that made it harder for people to try to get the money together to pay this tallage. During all of this, the king also ordered a census of England's Jewish population. Finally, in January of 1241, the king ordered the sheriff of Northamptonshire to, quote, cause to come before us at Worcester on the Sunday next before Ash Wednesday, six of the wealthier and more powerful of our Jews of Northampton. And from each town in Yorkshire in which Jews dwell, one or two Jews according to their numbers. If the sheriff did not do this, quote, we will so aggrieve you in consequence by your body and by your chattels that you will forever feel our hand to grieve you immoderately. So this meeting was called, it became known as the Worcester Parliament, and more than 100 Jewish delegates met to figure out how to pay this tallage. The results of this meeting also illustrate how much the Jewish community's wealth was really concentrated within just a few people, Three men together paid more than half of the total amount. They were Aaron of York, Leo of York, and David of Oxford. Licorice, interestingly, was one of the wealthiest people in Winchester at this point, but for unclear reasons, she is not listed in the detailed accounts of how this tallage was actually paid, aside from 10 pounds that she paid in 1239. So it's like, we don't know if, did she contribute to it? Are these records complete? Unclear. We don't know exactly when David of Oxford and Licoritia of Winchester met, but it may have been connected to all the activity around trying to pay this tallage. David was probably in his 50s and was one of the wealthiest and most influential Jewish men in all of England. And Licoritia was probably in her 30s and was one of England's wealthiest and most influential Jewish women. So it makes sense that they might have had some things in common, or that they might have wanted to combine their financial assets through a marriage. But also, David was already married to a woman named Muriel. David and Muriel didn't have any children, and it's possible that David used this as a justification to divorce her. When a Jewish person died, a third of their estate went to the crown, but if they had no heir, then the crown got all of the estate— So David may have wanted to try to make sure that part of his wealth stayed within the Jewish community rather than all of it being forfeited to the king by divorcing his wife and ideally having a child with someone else. Although divorce was not particularly common or accepted in Jewish communities at the time, there was an established process for how it was handled through a Beit Din, or Jewish court. Depending on how large a Jewish community was, the court might be made up of rabbis and lay people, or it could be a panel of rabbis only. The husband was the one who had to bring the matter before this panel, but the custom at the time was that the wife had to consent to the divorce. So David initially went to the Beit Den in England, which approved the divorce. But Muriel either didn't consent to the divorce at all or didn't consent to the settlement that she was given. So she and some of her supporters, one of whom may have been her brother, went to the Beit Den in Paris kind of as an appeal. The Jewish community in England had a lot of connections to the Jewish community in France. We talked in the beginning about how these are mostly folks who had come from France to settle in England. And in general, the Jewish community in France was seen as having like more experience, more knowledge, a greater authority. 
David apparently dealt with this by taking the matter to the king. Henry III issued a decree that rabbis, regardless of whether they lived in England or France, could not force David to, quote, take or hold any woman to wife except at his own free will. And this also wound up having much wider ramifications. Henry also demanded that Muriel and her supporters explain why they had gone to a French court to try to overrule an English one, and he banned the convening of Jewish courts in England. This ban, though, does not appear to have been strictly enforced. David's divorce was completed in 1242, and he and Licretia married sometime after that. They had a son together named Asher, also known as Sweetman. Some sources describe Asher and Sweetman as two different people, but that actually seems unlikely because David died in February of 1244, so he and Licretia were married for less than two years. It is possible that she could have been pregnant when he died, but if she had been, this probably would have been mentioned somewhere, especially for reasons we're going to talk about in a bit, and it, it just, it wasn't. We don't know much about what happened to Muriel after the divorce was finalized. She doesn't seem to have remarried, and the written record suggests that she struggled financially. Among other things, there's documentation of an unpaid tallage. The last written references to Muriel are from 1253. First, she was ordered to repair the house that she had been living in, which she had gotten as part of the divorce settlement. Then the house was turned over to Licorisha and a share. We don't really know what happened here. It's possible that Muriel lost the house because she hadn't made the required repairs, or even that she died. We'll get to what happened to Licorisha and the rest of her family after David's death after another quick sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. 
Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true. After David of Oxford died in 1244, Licretia was imprisoned in the Tower of London. And there are several possible explanations for this. Some sources describe it as an almost routine part of the assessment process when a Jewish person was inheriting a really large estate, since a third of that estate was supposed to go to the king. Others make it sound like an effort to make sure that Lucretia couldn't interfere with that assessment process or remove any of David's property before it was assessed. It's also possible that she was basically being held hostage to try to keep the Jewish community in line while all of this was going on. Six Jewish men were appointed by the king to oversee Licorice's business affairs while she was in the tower. Her son Asher would have been a baby, so he may have been in the tower with her, but we don't really know. Licretia was imprisoned for about seven months, and there's no record of her being pregnant or giving birth in the tower, which is part of why some scholars have concluded that Asher and Sweetman were the same person. Ultimately, Licretia seems to have negotiated a deal regarding her inheritance. She paid the crown 5,000 marks to keep control of David's whole estate, including all of his outstanding loans, rather than just the two-thirds of it that was normally how things were handled. About 4,000 marks of that payment was used to build a new shrine to Edward the Confessor at Westminster Abbey, who at the time was considered the patron saint of England. This shrine was kind of one of the king's pet projects. She also paid an inheritance tax of 2,500 pounds, And she was exempt from future talages as long as she paid the crown 24 marks a year. Uh, As we said earlier, really hard to try to convert a medieval currency amount to like modern equivalents. But one source that I read approximated that 5,000 marks was about 2.5 million pounds or roughly 4 million American dollars. Um, This was a ton of money. But it also does not seem to come even close to, like, a whole third of David's estate. After being released from the tower in September of 1244, Licorice kept expanding her business, traveling all over England to do so. Her clients included the king and members of the royal family, as well as members of the aristocracy and the Catholic Church. She also made loans to landowners, farmers, and other less affluent people. 
She met with the king regularly, most often when he was in Winchester. She became so prominent that her sons were often referred to as son of Licrisha rather than by their father's names. This was most striking for a share, since his father David had been even more prominent and powerful than his mother. A lot of the records that we have of Licrisha's later life come from financial and court records. There are court records in which she sued other people for unpaid debts and records in which she was the one who was sued. Some of these cases sound really dramatic. For example, in about 1250, Sir Thomas Charlcote died after drowning in a lake on his property, and he had a loan from Licorice still outstanding. By law, Licorice was allowed to keep control of his estate and earn income from it for a year and a day, but in 1253, his son, who was also named Thomas, took her to court because she had exceeded that time by at least two years. Licorice then claimed that the younger Thomas had killed his father, or at least arranged his death, Licorice was held in the Tower of London while this trial was going on, which was one of at least four times that she was imprisoned there. When the court found in Thomas's favor, saying that Lucretia had to vacate this property, she went to the king about it. The king ordered a retrial, mandated that Lucretia could not be penalized any further, and set her fine at half a mark. Just not a lot of money in this context. <laughs> Also in 1253, Henry III issued a new Statute of the Jewry, the one that we read from earlier on in the show. This statute ordered that no new synagogues be built and that Jewish people could only remain in England if they served the king in some way. A number of its provisions were focused on separating Jews from Christians and making Jewish people less visible in English society. Like, Jewish people had to be quiet in their synagogues so that Christians would not hear them. Relationships between Jews and Christians were forbidden, and Jews were forbidden to have Christian wet nurses working in their homes. In practice, this law also seems to have ended the custom of allowing Jewish people to pay to be exempt from wearing the tabula. Around this same time, Henry III also started routinely demanding higher tallages, in part because the Worcester Parliament in 1241 had documented just how affluent some members of the community were. Jewish people in their communities had always faced prejudice, persecution, and at some points, violence in England. And this really increased in the mid-13th century. This included Jewish people being falsely accused of crimes. In 1258, another lender named Belia of Bedford gave Licorice a gold ring to give to the king as a gift. This ring disappeared, and Licorice's neighbor, Iveta, accused her of stealing it. It turned out that Iveta herself was the one who had taken it. The Second Barons' War started in 1264 and continued for three years. Like the First Barons' War, this was a civil war that grew out of an uprising of barons against the king. In many areas, the barons and their allies saw Jews as agents of the king, and some people used this as a justification for persecution and violence, which became even more widespread. People also stole or destroyed the RK containing all the loan documentation, meaning that lenders had no way to recoup their money. Shortly after the Second Baron's War ended, Lucretia's son Benedict was elected to the Merchants' Guild, making him the first and only Jewish person in medieval England to become a guildsman. 
This also made him a full citizen of England, and Christians in Winchester rioted over it to the point that the king had to dispatch guards to try to protect the Jewish community. Lucretia was probably in her 60s as all this was happening. One court document in 1270 describes her as failing to appear when she was summoned, saying she was too ill to leave her home. In 1272, Henry III died and was succeeded by Edward I. While Henry's attitudes toward Jewish people had been fickle and self-serving and increasingly stringent in later years, Edward was devoutly Christian and took an immediate anti-Jewish stance. He ordered a tallage of a third of all Jewish assets, and in 1275, he authorized towns around England to start expelling their Jewish populations. He also issued a new statute of Jewry that barred Jewish financiers from charging interest. This also specified that the amount repaid could not be more than the original amount of the loan. So, for example, lenders couldn't use late fees to try to deter people from missing payments. And this statute also replaced the tabula with a yellow badge. In 1277, so just about two years after that, Lucretia was murdered in her home, along with her maid, Alice of Bicton. Lucretia's daughter, or possibly daughter-in-law, Belia, found them stabbed to death. Authorities treated this as a robbery gone wrong, and they focused mainly on the goods that had been removed from the house. That part was really not uncommon. Like, the fact that Jewish people's goods were described as the king's goods meant that a lot of times if a Jewish person was the victim of a crime, the only thing people were really focused on was the king getting his property back. There's a lot of speculation, though, about whether this was really a hate crime. Lucretia was extremely wealthy and prominent. One of her sons was the only Jewish guildsman in the country and had been named as cheater for the Jewish community and keeper of the queen's gold. Alice of Bicton was a Christian, so it was illegal for her to have been working in Lucretia's home. This crime also happened in broad daylight, so it may have been meant as some kind of threat or warning to the rest of the Jewish community. Some aspects of this crime are weird and confusing. Licorice's house was supposed to be sealed up until assessors could go through all her assets. But two of Benedict's sons were accused of breaking in with the help of two of the sheriff's men and stealing much of what was inside. The sheriff himself was initially accused as well, but he apparently proved that he was in London at the time. One of Benedict's sons, Abraham, had already been accused of other crimes, but we really don't know what was going on here or why two of the sheriff's men may have been involved. The fact that these were Benedict's sons also reflected not just on him, but on the entire Jewish community. A saddler named Ralph of Chisel was accused of the murder, but he had fled from Winchester. He was outlawed, but he was never tried for the crime. Lucretia's sons, Asher and Cockerell, thought this man was a scapegoat, and they tried to bring charges against two other men who they thought were more likely culprits. There's no record of anybody ever being tried or punished for this, though. A year after Lucretia's death, Benedict was charged with coin clipping. At the time, coins were made from pure metal, so people could shave or clip small pieces from their edges to melt down for profit. And it seems that both Christians and Jews did this in roughly the same proportions, but Jewish people were accused and convicted of it far more often. Benedict's arrest was part of an enormous crackdown on coin clipping. 
It is likely that coin clipping really was on the rise. Edward I's predecessors had really set up a system that encouraged Jewish people to work as lenders, but then Edward had made it impossible to actually earn a living that way. But this crackdown was effectively a pogrom. England's entire Jewish population was imprisoned. Three times more Christian than Jews were accused of coin clipping, but 10 times more Jews than Christians were executed. At this point, the Jewish population of England was only about 3,000 people, and it's estimated that 300 or 10% were executed for suspicion of coin clipping. One of these was Licorice's son, Benedict, who was executed in 1280. This was not the last time England imprisoned its entire Jewish population. In 1287, the king imposed a tallage of 12,000 marks and imprisoned the whole community after only 5,000 pounds of it was raised. Licorice's son, Asher, was imprisoned at Winchester Castle and scratched graffiti into the wall there in Hebrew, which was discovered in the 17th century. Only a piece of the inscription survived, which noted the date that everyone had been imprisoned by referencing the scripture that had been read for the Sabbath that week, along with I, Asher, inscribed this. In 1290, England expelled its entire Jewish population, at that point numbering about 2,000 people. Asher and any of Licorice's other surviving children and grandchildren were driven from England at this time. People were allowed to take their possessions with them, but their houses and anything they couldn't carry was forfeited to the king. Although they were supposed to be allowed safe passage, a lot of people still faced violence as they tried to leave, including multiple truly horrifying accounts of ship passengers being left to drown as they tried to get to continental Europe. This was the first of a series of expulsions all across Europe, including from Spain in 1492. We covered that expulsion on the show before. The prohibition on Jewish people in England remained in place until 1657. The Licorice of Winchester Appeal is a charity that was established in 2017 to educate the public about the medieval Jewish community in Winchester. The organization raised funds for a life-size statue of Licorice. This statue is now complete. It is uh, the thing that prompted these articles that went viral last year. In this statue, she's walking along with a young Asher. She's holding his hand and carrying a taladrol in the other. He has a dreidel. This statue was sculpted by Ian Rank Broadley, and it was unveiled on Jury Street in Winchester on February 10th of 2022. King Charles II, who at the time was still Prince Charles, was supposed to be part of this unveiling, but he had COVID, so he had to visit about a month later. The Licorice of Winchester Appeal also commissioned a book, which came out in 2022 as well. That's titled Licorice of Winchester, Power and Prejudice in Medieval England, and that's by Rebecca Abrams. Do you have listener mail today? I do have some listener mail. This listener mail goes back to our square dancing episodes. <laughs> this person signed their message as Annex 8000 and said, Hello, you briefly mentioned that in the Caribbean, there are variations on the quadrille as well as ring dances and call and response. In fact, in the 1950s, something emerged that has become a present-day Cuban version of square dancing that has spread through the U.S. and beyond. We dance it here in Los Angeles. It's called rueda. That's wheel dancing, 
and it started in the pre-revolutionary casinos of Havana. While this particular dance is clearly modern, it likely has some connection to those earlier influence you mentioned. It has a caller who tells the group uh, as a whole which pasos to dance. Usually a red group will develop its own pasos as it develops its own identity. The music is better than square dancing music too. There are then some links to learn more about this. And then on a related note, the Cuban mambo is a descendant of the English country dance as well. Thank you so much for this email. I did not know that. Apologies for me not being able to say Rueda very well. <laughs> I feel like I have lost some rolling my R's ability from my childhood. Uh, and also, I've, I I don't know, I, I, I stumbled over that. So thank you so much. I did not know any of this. And if you would like to send us a note about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at iHeartRadio.com. We're all over social media at Miss in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and our Pinterest and our X thing and uh, Instagram. That's the other one. You can subscribe to our show also on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple. Affordable. Reliable. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.